episode 273, The Rant, Joe Thompson, Iabo Board 37 Certified Basketball Official, Second Vice President as well, and Men's Collegiate Basketball Official. I met Joe on a screen in a Zoom call. We both long to be on a court once more. In this pod, we discuss his early life playing sports, his start in officiating, his ascendancy doing high-level PSAL games and college, and what he's been up to during the age of coronavirus. Along with my co-host Bernard Bowen Sr. of B-Ball Referees, our conversation with Joe now. The Rant has been brought to you by Geo Studios, now open. They are located one block south of Westbury Train Station in the heart of Long Island, New York. Looking to bring your art or event to life? Trying to record a podcast? Enjoy six rooms of studio space to create audio and visual content. It also includes an 800-square-foot cyclorama wall studio, a state-of-the-art recording studio, three breakout rooms for four to six people each, which include a green room and lounges, a quality surround sound with six speakers and studio lighting, and most importantly, two on-site restrooms. You know I need my restrooms. Book your space today. For more information, find us at geoevents.com. The Rant has been brought to you by the revolutionary product for referees and all professionals alike, Neat Tucks. What the tuck? Traditional shirt stays have been tried and true, but never accounted for those professionals that have shorts as uniforms. What do you do when you officiate soccer or lacrosse or even basketball in the summer? Don't forget about baseball umpires, too. Enter Neat Tucks, which come in style and active versions. Don't get it twisted. You can even wear them at your 9 to 5, too. Listeners of The Rant can visit neattux.com and enter the coupon code REFEREERANT, one word, and receive 20% off your initial order. That's REFEREERANT, one word. Happy tucking. Welcome to another edition of The Rant. I'm your host, Ralph the Ref. I'm with two super special guests, but first of all, I got uh, my co-pilot, my uh, forever eternal collaborator from B-Ball Referees, Mr. Bernard Bowen Sr. How are you, my friend? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing well, and this is probably a surprise to our guests because I don't do too much talking during these calls, uh, but Brooklyn board number 37, second vice president, Division II men's basketball official, and of course, serving PSAL for Brooklyn Queens. Mr. Joe Thompson, how are you, my friend? I feel blessed, Ralph. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you, man. And, you know, Bernard has been getting some heavy hitters on the call, and it's not so much of what level they're on. It's it's more so the quality of the people that he's been getting on. And, and in particular, if I could just highlight the time that I've spent with you, it, it feels like a fireside chat. It feels like FDR, a president that's talking, just kind of dispensing information, wisdom, knowledge and understanding to a lot of the younger officials. So it's really a great time uh, for you to do such a thing. Um, nonetheless, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thank you for the time. So first I want to say, um, you know, the COVID-19 global pandemic has really changed a lot of things. I know for me and Bernard, I know that we would normally be on the field like on a Saturday, just trying to get games. And, and I'm sure that Bernard would have been done doing a lot of running around just trying to assign games and, and going to check new officials. But, you know, we've been doing something different, especially since April. Uh, we've collaborated and we've gotten a lot of officials to just really buy in and just watch a lot of the things that we've been doing the past couple of months. So, you know, having said that, how was your family during the coronavirus? How are you holding up? I and mean, what was the moment that you started taking all of this stuff real serious? Well, the family is good. We are, like most American citizens, we are nimble. 
and we understand the severity of the pandemic. And we are praying for those individuals who are still in doubt of the severity of the pandemic that they would uh, galvanize behind what the science is telling us. Mm. The first hint I got of the coronavirus was November of 2019. Uh, one morning I was in church and one of my friends who was an usher there uh, works for a company that is headquartered in Wuhan, China. And she was scheduled to fly to Wuhan, China to give a training course. And that day she told me that her trip had been canceled because of the virus. Mm. So this is like early November 2019 when I first started getting wind of the coronavirus, how it originated in Wuhan, China. Mm. So um, it's not something that we should be taking lightly. And then I did a little research and I saw the TED talk that Joe Gates gave in 2014 mm -hmm. about viral warfare. And then I led me to some further research and I watched a YouTube video of Barack Obama and a speech he gave in 2015 mm. concerning viral warfare. So to answer your question, November 2019 is when it first really hit me really hard. Yeah, unreal. And it's crazy how things have just completely uh, have been upended since November. Um, I think there's just like a collective hubris of the United States where we're like, you know, man, that's not going to really affect us until it really affected us in a deep way. I know that at least the world and especially in the United States, we took it serious when the Utah Jazz and the Oklahoma City Thunder got upended and, and they couldn't even finish their game. Their game got preempted during and i think that was the moment where we were like oh this must be serious if the nba which is really revenue based and entertainment based when they shut it down were you in the midst of a game when it happened that particular day when everything got shut down do you can you recall when everything got all crazy at least in new york state that day i didn't have a scheduled psal game or a college game but i was home and i did get wind of the following morning that the nba a directive to the arena to pull the teams off the court prior to the game beginning. And just the notion that the NBA would stop a game from commencing indicated that it was very serious, mm. that they weren't, were not taking it lightly. So I, I kind of commend the NBA because they were the first professional sports uh, entity to really put a halt to potential spread of the virus. Now, with that complete stoppage, um, I know it probably changed way your schedule was going to be moving forward in April and May. And, you know, a lot of people, sometimes they, they take a sabbatical. I know one of my mentors, Derek Madrid, he really takes it easy after the PSAL season um, and he really rests his body. And sometimes he just observes locally out here in Long Island on the AAU circuit. I know for me, I was going to gear up for my baseball season and my lacrosse season and all that stuff got preempted. And I was getting really disappointed because, you know, basketball to me is something that's always there for me. Baseball is like a real small sliver time, a slice of time for me to just, you know, kind of get outside of basketball and to really get into baseball. How do you think it's changed from, you know, what you normally do year to year to, you know, this April, May, June of, of just kind of being in a sabbatical of officiating? And it's something that you didn't have any control over this time. Well, first, I have to say that Derek Madry is a very 
very close friend of mine, and I've worked uh, a number of high school games with him. He's just an outstanding individual. Him and his brother, as you know, his brother is uh, seventy chief and borough commander for the borough of Brooklyn in the police department. In terms of the day-to-day operations, I can tell you that everything changed 180 degrees. So we went from having in-person meetings and commuting to locations. I was uh, spending a lot of time in Dallas, Texas to work to actually now extent of outside activity is I run three miles every other day. The only other time I'm outside is if I have to run a significant errand or I'm going to an appointment that I have to have. And other than that, we've had nothing but Zoom calls and conference calls and a lot of email traffic. So it's unfortunate that the American way of life has grinded to a halt, basically. Mm. And that's probably the differentiator between the United States and a lot of other countries on the globe is that we as Americans, we're very active. Mm all across the country, whether it's hiking, swimming, uh, playing volleyball, taking the children to soccer practice, going to ballet lessons. You know, the United States is a, a community and a country that thrives itself on activity. So that's the unfortunate part, that we have really slowed down and it's affected our school children, the elementary children, the middle school children. Who, who want to interact with their friends and they cannot. So it's a very, very difficult time here in the United States. Yeah, it's it's a completely difficult time, and we're still trying to make lemonade out of lemons. I know, Bernard, I want you to chime in with this. We've been collaborating with all these virtual camps really week in, week out, um, and I've been having such a ball, I, for real. Like, I, I, I'm kind of disappointed that I don't talk that much, and, and please don't call on me because, you know, I, I'm doing this, all this stuff behind the background. And by the way, Bernard, you were killing me yesterday, man. You were trying to get me to invite people onto the host while I was on the video. You should have seen it. it was like I was like Twister that day. <laughs> um, but well, listen, that's, that's, the, that's the potential that's in you, and I'm just trying to bring it all out. <laughs> right, right. But you know, I wanted to just talk about these virtual camps. What did you see in a Joe Thompson that you wanted him to get involved? Because, like I said, I think if somebody doesn't really know who Joe Thompson is. Just the fact the way he just comes out there and the way he speaks about things, it's like, man, he's really cutting a room with his presence. And I think that's really hard to do on a Zoom call, if you ask me. So what made, what did you see in Joe Thompson that, that you wanted him to get involved in some of those calls? And the reason why I wanted Joe to be more involved, as I know he would get involved, is just to bring him on board and tell him what I was doing. Because I think between the, him and I, as we met, and, and as he mentioned the other night on one of the Zoom calls, we met in the locker room, and, and I took some interest in him as a referee, and he took an interest in somebody who took interest in him mm. that didn't know him. And his trust to me was in seeing my, my attitude, my demeanor, my language, my follow-through. All of those things was positive. Joe is a positive person. So having him around, having him involved in what I'm doing, it's just an extension of who I am. Mm. So when I got Joe on and, and and he just automatically like gravitated to it and said, let me introduce some other folks to it because it's not too many folks that he, he would, I would say that he would go ahead and ask to jump on board 
because of the fact that he's such a dynamic, positive-minded folks that some folks don't have the patience to listen to positiveness. Mm. They always want to have something that, you know, one, two, three. Joe gives you the whole bottom line. He's going to give you the beginning, the middle, and the end. He's not going to rush to get it out to you. He's going to break it down to you in logic terms, and you should be able to comprehend because he's going to give you enough time while he's communicating for you to understand what he's saying. Mm. So for me, it's just a win-win. And with his support and, and absolutely your support, you know, we basically have opened this up. And, and as you know, last night we were on the line. We had London. We had Canada. We had Alabama. We had Houston, Texas. So all the folks that we have been able to reach, and, and because of Joe's dialogue, and a lot of his communication skills to folks about the basketball community, it just elevates him. And I like him being known for what he's doing. So his support to me is what I need to give back to him. And I will always continue to do that for him. Mm. So I wanted to tell Joe this, me and Bernard, we've only had a relationship. This is my second summer going into it. And, you know, I think I was disappointed in the beginning because I have my own, my own, driven pursuits that I have professionally on the ref side. And, you know, we couldn't really do that because everything is kind of shut down. So, you know, I really doubled down in doing what I was doing on the other side. And, you know, Bernard has always been a champion for me and he's always been an archetype because he's the type of person that instead of him, I guess, deviating from the game and refing on the court, he, he even took a step closer to the officiating game and got everyone involved. And he realized that even though he sacrificed his own career, he's made other people's careers so much better. And you had your relationship with him. You've known him for a lot longer than I have. How surprised are you, I guess, just outside looking in, how Bernard has been able to, decade after decade, completely reinvent himself and, and, and basically update his firmware and still be relevant in the officiating game? Well... I'm not actually surprised at all. And the reason for that is, one, uh, Bernard is extremely knowledgeable about the game in its totality, playing, coaching, and officiating. Secondly, his reputation among assigners, tournament directors, IABOL officials, collegiate officials, and collegiate supervisors is at the very highest of levels that you could probably have in terms of a reputable name. The thing that people fail to understand is people want to say your name and have a thought in their head that mm. means this is a reputable person that I can trust and deal with. And so Bernard fits that category. Now, along with all of that, when he is supervising officials in the winter or in the summer, no matter where the venue is. One, I've never asked him how much money I was going to get paid because I always trust him. And whatever the amount is, is fine with me because I know that he's serving the best interests of the officials as well as continuing to support b-ball referees in his organization. That of itself gives me the comfort to know that when I find other young officials and I say, look, Bernard Bowen is, and Ralph are doing 
these virtual camps and these virtual Zoom sessions, you need to get on because there's going to be a lot of information disseminated that can help. And so the way that Bernard is, it transfers and translates over to other people. We need to always consider about paying forward, providing other people a platform, an opportunity to get knowledge. Because it's a very, once you get beyond understanding how to officiate, it's a very difficult business to navigate mm. based on your age, your demographic group, your gender, what, what part of the country you live in. It's a very, very difficult business to navigate. So Bernard and yourself are to be commended because a lot of these people that are on the call, they don't have the same experiences that the three of us have here in the New York tri-state area. Mm. We're very spoiled and don't realize this is a hotbed for referee, for the referee community because there are a number of venues in which you can work at various levels. Whereas if you're in the deep south, like I lived in Mississippi for four years, and the, the town had one little pro-am tournament that ran once a year. They had nothing for the middle school or elementary kids as a theater program into the high school. They didn't have it. Mm. So here we have venues that start with the very, very little ones, the little 12 and under, the little 10-year-olds, and we can take you all the way through to the program. Mm -hmm. And you can work consistently. Because Bernard, like I said on one of the calls, Bernard is one of three individuals that I know that has multiple venues with different age levels and the different uh, levels of proficiency and, and ability. So that helps officials to get better, just getting the experience, getting the work on the floor. We could sit through film sessions and talk about officiating, but the best teacher, as Claude Brown wrote, the best, the best teacher in life is time and experience. So once you get that experience, it's another addition to your toolkit. Mm. Yeah, and I think the I think the same goes for you. Especially, you could just hear that emanating when you speak. And you know, Bernard, I to me personally, I think that your camp is one of the most dynamic ones. Aside from me being involved and somebody like Joe Thompson being involved, and I think it's more so of just the level of different people that are involved. Whether it be somebody that just started, like somebody like Renee that's on the call, all the way down the line, all the way to Kevin Sparrick, who who had a game like the day before. Like he's like the, one of the only refs that are refing. And just the fact that we're breaking down tape with people from all different types of levels with somebody like Al Batista, who's getting professional advice and he's breaking it down and showing you what kind of how much meat is on the bones, how you can really break it down to high school, women's college, men's college and to the pro level. I mean, that's such a valuable asset. And, you know, we continuously thank you, Bernard, um, in making these camps. But, you know, back to you, Joe. I know you had a passion somewhere that started when you were a young boy. Um, just talk about, if you can, where did you grow up? What did you play growing up? What did you play in middle school? What did you play in high school? And what did you play in college? Well, I grew up in Woodside, Queens, a proud alumni of the New York City Housing Authority. I grew up in the Woodside Project. And growing up, I played football, baseball, and basketball. And baseball was actually my first love. But when I got around 12 years old, one particular summer, in those days, the most prominent summer tournament was Citywide, which was owned by Ernie Lloyd. And uh, it was in every borough. And Cecil Watkins was one of the leaders of the program that was in East Ellenberg's Corona community. 
And so in the projects where I lived, there were four age groups all playing under the name of the Woodside Roadrunner. And our senior and unlimited teams had players on like Jackie Knowles, who ended up playing at uh, Ulster County Community and then at Niagara University, Bernard Clemens, Nelson Marcel, Jerry Morse Jr., who played for Dick Vitale at the University of Detroit. I played with Jerry's younger brother, Eddie Morse, who ended up playing at Syracuse. So by the time I was 12 or 13, basketball just consumed my life. There was nothing else but basketball. Mm. And by the time I was 14, I stopped going on family vacations. I stopped going to parties because all I wanted to do was play basketball. Some of my opponents were like Bernard Wrencher and Greg Coles. Greg Coles ended up playing at Clemson University. and Bernard played at Notre Dame for a year and then transferred to St. John's. And it was just something about the game that I was just drawn to. I loved practice. A couple of my close friends, Eddie Moss and Jeff Gordon, they attended Powell Memorial, where Bernard Bowen went to high school. Mm-hmm. And I went to Monsignor McClancy. I ended up playing at New York Tech out in uh, Old Westbury, which was a Division II school. I say to any young person that if you want to find out who you are, pick a sport or a musical instrument or swimming. Pick anything where you have to evaluate your skill set over time. So from one year to the next, evaluate what your strengths and weaknesses are. And then come up with a plan to improve those weaknesses. And I think that's the reason why athletics and sports in this country is so popular. Because no matter who you are, what you look like, where you're from, if you're good, you're just simply good. Mm. And people are going to notice you. So I kind of relate that to how I officiate. I just feel that I want to officiate. I want to continue to officiate because I enjoy it. I love it. But when the day comes when my skill set is not where it needs to be, I won't do an injustice to the game. I will stop. Mm. And that's, that's the issue with a lot of officials. Are you refing as the, the subject was the other night, the love of the game or the love of the money? And I never worried about the money because I knew that I really loved the game. And it was a great way for me to give back to the game. So that's really, I'm a New York City kid and I I live in the suburbs of New Jersey, but I consider myself a New Yorker Mm. and proud of it. Proud to be from the project. Absolutely. Um, Now, in terms of, I guess, when, when you finally were playing all of these different levels growing up, you know, you played Division Two, and you played at Monsignor McClancy. What was your perception of officials all the while you were playing basketball? That's a great question, and I, I wrote some notes down. And the only, the only thing that I noticed about officials as a player was whether or not they were giving their best effort. If they were running with the play and staying with the play, were they sweating on the court the way that we as players were sweating, were they really running up and down the floor? The other thing, playing a lot of AAU basketball with folks that I grew up with, a lot of times we felt that we had to ignore the officiating completely and complete and just simply compete and win 
regardless of who was officiating. So if you think about it, if a team is up by nine or 10 points or more, you basically eliminated the officiating in the game because now there's not one whistle that can sway the game from leads to someone winning and someone losing. But when those games are tight and you're in possession type ball games where it's down, to, it's a white knuckle and it's down to the last few minutes of the game, the referees are virtually in control of what happens. And you as a player, you've got to really play with your best effort. You have to feel that you have to block out the officials to a certain degree. I can remember playing in certain different parts of New York where we knew the officiating was not as honest as we thought it should be. However, in the days that I grew up, we didn't blame losing on officials. So that's how I look at it. I look at it. If, if you're really a ball player, you will learn to eliminate the performance of an official. Mm. That's definitely par for the course, trying to eliminate that and then uh, people trying to really separate themselves from doing that. Where, how did you get the bug? What was the first moments that you started going like, oh, maybe I, my, I could start officiating? Because, you know, what I found, you know, over the course of doing this hundreds of times, just everyone kind of just finds it, you know, out of the blue. No one ever thinks of it as like, oh, when I'm 14, once I'm done with high school, I'm going to start refing. What was your first bug of officiating? I had uh, the pleasure at New York Tech, one of our assistant coaches was Fran for Schiller who is now, uh, he's a good friend of mine, he's a commentator on ESPN, and he is also responsible for evaluation and recruitment of European players for the NBA. And when we went to the Final Four, Fran was on our staff with uh, Eric Eisenberg, Rocky Eisenberg, who was at Erasmus Hall, Ron Gagnon, who ended up at UNLV, and Sam Sunders, head coach. But I noticed... Um, with a lot of my friends who went into coaching that they had to move around a lot. So they went from an assistant coaching job down in Georgia. Then they moved to another assistant coaching job at the University of Tennessee. Or they moved from Tennessee, they went to another school in uh, Illinois or Michigan. So I noticed that if you wanted to climb the ranks as a Division One collegiate coach, you had to pay your dues. And it meant living in different parts of the country. I really didn't want to do that. So I thought about it after a few years of playing after college, and I wasn't as motivated to play competitively as much. And then around the age of 30, I started looking at maybe blowing the whistle. And that was when uh, Jimmy Paul was running Saboa and my good friend Maurice Brown was a Saboa member, and he became a member of Board 42. And I was a few years after that, I moved out of state. I lived in Mississippi, and I became a high school federation official in Mississippi. So that's and I was 92. So that was really when I started to really think of it as an excellent hobby to have mm. and to be around the game. So the, I like being around the game. I like being around the young people. For sure. Now, this is an interesting question that I want to ask you because, you know, I feel like somebody like Bernard Bowen Sr., you might meet him when you're already kind of in the pro circuit as a G League official. You might meet him on the street and he sees something in you. When was that moment and where were you in your career when you met Bernard Bowen Sr.? 
Okay, so I wasn't certified. I uh, moved back to New Jersey in 1996. And then I entered uh, graduate school at Rutgers University. I finished the MBA program in 1999. And I ended up doing a game for Tony Hargraves, who played at Iona many years ago. And uh, he lives in Phoenix, New Jersey, a good friend of mine. And he had a tournament that he was assigning at a middle school in the Bronx. And one of the teams I remember was coached by, it was a middle school tournament, but it was coached by the head coach of the varsity team from Mount St. Michael. Excellent. This guy, I can't remember his name. Excellent coach. This guy is unbelievably good. He since retired from coaching at Mount St. Mary many years ago. And at halftime, in walks this guy, and he says, you know, my name is Bernard Bowen. We got to talking, and he said, well, I worked at the Bank of New York for a couple of years. I said, well, I worked at the Bank of New York from 82 to 85. He said, well, that's why I know you. And I said, yeah, well, I'm good friends with Roger King. He said, yeah, I know Roger King as well. And from that moment, at halftime of the game, he said, well, let's, let's exchange numbers. I've got some work for you at the 92nd Street Y. And I think it was Tony Hargraves who was involved as well. And then from there, we traded emails and phone numbers. Bernard had a variety of venues, and he invited me to work some of these venues. In the midst of that, I was still trying to get certified. And I took some referee classes with uh, B-Born referees at the... It was either Hansborough or the Kennedy Center. I can't remember which one it was. And um, yeah, it was the Kennedy Center. It was the Kennedy Center. I thought it was. You know, I went to the classes about five or six Saturdays in a row. That's why I met Mr. Henderson, who's now in Houston. He was on the call the other week, and Joey Douglas. So many officials that I've worked with over the years, and they were all working for Bernard. So when I saw that he had a lot of strong. Steve Strickland was another. He had a lot of strong referees that was already working for him. I wanted to work for him, and I wanted to get part of his network as mine and also to get the knowledge and the information so that I could fortify myself as an official. Mm. So that's really how it all began. It was just really serendipity, if you want to call it that, or just God's sake that we just happened to meet in the locker room. Mm. So I want I want to kick this over to Bernard. So um, we talk about this all the time of of how we have so much in common personally outside of officiating. Of course, officiate uh, officiating colors our relationship. But then we talk about so many different things outside of that. Um, I want you to go back to that particular day when you met Joe Thompson. And I know you had the connection with the Bank of New York. But what did you see in Joe Thompson that particular day that you wanted to gravitate towards him and help the young man? What I saw was a person who was ambitious, who wanted to be a leader, wanted to be strong, had his mindset, wanted to, he wanted to do it right. And, and he went by the rule. He understood how to handle a, a rule or an interpretation or his presentation and others that may have been lacking or lack of professionalism you didn't see that in him. And some of that was it was shown so quickly that there are people who were around him that didn't know how to deal with him. And because they didn't know how to deal with him, 
did not, uh, it would have made me more proud to want to deal with him because it was nothing but a reflection of myself taking something serious that I wanted to do. And when you made the commitment to showing up just to review your classwork as a referee, to take your Saturdays and make it right, all of those little things gave you the stepping stones to seeing a good official building his craft through his academic ability to being an official on the court and then staying in touch with you. And this is something that you and I talk about a lot of times. And I say, Ralph, oh, you put me on the show. And I, I love you. So that's why I can mess with you that way because all you got to do is pick up the phone and call somebody sometime mm. and say to them, you're doing okay? How are you doing? Because I have, I, I'm so proud not to be, not to be in the threat of taking a game from an official. You understand? My threat as who I am is how do I teach officials and those who are trying to do what I have done or doing, that's the threat. So when I teach an official, I'm not the threat to the official. I'm the threat to the official teaching him how to be me or how I was and enhance you to be better than who I was when I officiated. And I saw a lot of that in Joe. I, I, I see that even when he's working with other officials. And people tell me that, you know, like when he's working, it's professionalism. It's by the book. It's by the rules. You know, handle yourself. I've had Joe sometimes say, Bernard, I can't do more than two games this week, you know, because I want to give 100% when I'm out there. You don't have officials doing that. And that's when we talk about the love of the game or love of the money. And, and when you hear somebody say, I'll take two and I'm good with it. You know, I'll take just one, I'm fine. That tells you that person is coming to work, not to have a, a glutton for a dollar for a basketball game. So all of those things, I've seen him grow. I've seen him get turned down by college assigners, and they pick somebody else. Now, I may be a little biased because I love Joe as a, as a brother, but at the end of the day, he deserved it. And I know the work that he put in. I know the efforts that he's put in. But with all of those obstacles and hurdles and, and experiences, I am just so proud of him still sticking with it and staying within his game, you know, and seeing other new officials that take the court with him. The first thing they talk about is how he's, he's teaching them where to go. He's teaching them how to conduct themselves. And he takes that college camp experience as an official and he'll bring it to a new official just like I would have done if I was on the court repping with that younger official. So his outlook on it is absolutely, absolutely tremendous. Mm. So I want to get into that work ethic, Joe. So, you know, just listening to Bernard and all those different things, you know, just from me meeting you from the Zoom call and, of course, I, I'm – Looking forward to meeting you in person with Bernard. I'm pretty sure we'll have a lot in common and, and we'll break some bread at some point whenever this is all over in 80 years. Uh, but <laughs> back to your work ethic, I think it's really important to just identify the different principles that you possess within yourself because, you know, when you listen to yourself, you sound like somebody that has so much experience. And I think you really break it down in a very simplistic matter. 
I really think that if I was a younger official and I was somebody that was starting off, I really would gravitate to your words because sometimes things that you have in your head, it's really hard to quantify and identify what you really feel until you hear somebody like you and you go, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. And that could be the fork in the road for somebody of taking it serious or somebody taking it not serious. So I just wanted you to have the opportunity to just describe your work ethic and what do you think it entails? Because I think it's somebody that's sound in mind and somebody that's sound in seriousness of purpose when it comes to this officiating game. I've got a, a few funny tidbits. When I was playing, my mother was alive. and I started bringing home a lot of trophies. My mother was someone who wants to stop coming and wants to have a life. And she would say to me, the trophies don't do anything to collect dust. And what she really meant was that the joy in winning the award is that day or that moment that you win the award. But after that, it doesn't mean anything anymore. So I think you have to, first of all, you have to be forward thinking. The other thing is what John Madden, NFL head coach for the Oakland Raiders. The three simple words at the Oakland Raiders. Be on time. And what that really means, Ralph, is that if I have a game at 2 p.m. at Orchard Beach, I design my day so that I can arrive by 1 p.m. So that I have time to sit down, relax. If there's a problem with traffic, I can call Bernard and he can get to Joey Cruz and let them know I'll be there by 1.30. Most people, unfortunately, in officiating, they who, not all, but, but some that I've experienced, were hesitant or reluctant to share information and knowledge. And I found that unacceptable. And I believe that when you officiate, one, you can never officiate a perfect game. It's impossible. Two, you need to have an open mind. Like I said, one time on the call, our minds are like parachutes. They only function when they're open. So that means you could learn something from a 12-year-old in the middle of a game. Mm. He could say something to you and it will resonate with you and you'll keep it in your toolbox. So officiating is very dynamic and that is constant learning, constant moving, constant understanding of how you need to conduct yourself as an official. And there were only a few people uh, Dow Pearson, also known as Arizona, was one of them. Uh, Bernard Bowen. It was only a few people. Mono Saunders was pretty helpful when I first joined the 37. There only a few people that really, Randy DeBose was another one. A few people that really reached out and extended a hand of welcome first, and then to offer tidbits of information that I could apply to my toolbox. Mm. So, so I believe that we in the referee community, it's important to share good, bad, and indifferent experiences. Because a lot of young officials, they get on the court, they might be a little nervous, and the first thing I try to tell them is that, hey, we're not curing cancer. This is not nucleus physics. We're reffing a basketball game. Enjoy it. Loosen up a little bit. And just let it come to you. Don't don't try to force yourself to be a good official. It'll come to you every time. Mm. 
And and a lot of people never offered that kind of advice to me. I just learned it as I went along. Or I would have conversations with Bernard. I would call him and I would ask him. First, I would text him and say, can you talk or are you available? And he, he would talk and I would say, well, this is the situation. I went to camp. I got picked for the Division three level, but I didn't get a Division two contract. And we would kind of talk talk it through. And then one year, I went to Hoop Mountain, which is up in uh, near Foxborough, Massachusetts. Pretty long drive. And on the way up, Bernard, who was there as a clinician and an evaluator, this was an NCAA hiring camp. And on the way up, it was about a six or seven hour drive. It was a fairly long distance. He calls me on the phone while I'm in the car. He says, look, I got to tell you something. So I said, what? He said, when you get there and you're getting instructions from clinicians on the court, don't say a word. Just take in the information. Okay. You see, in those kind of inf- that kind of information is important because you have to understand a camp environment and how it really works and what is the criteria for people judging you. And if you don't have that information, Ralph, you're powerless. You, oh, just, you just don't know. If you don't know, you're in a powerless situation, and it makes it even more difficult for you to get that confidence. So I'm of the belief that this short period of time that I have on earth, that I want to be someone who is of service to others. Mm. Yeah, I think we're all united, especially on this call of of having that mission statement. I just say one thing in particular of what you were saying. I remember my first experience with camp. I was like, man, I just wasted money because I didn't even know what was happening. Like I had to waste money in order for me to know what to do the next time. And it's like playing a video game. Like, oh, damn, I lost in the lava. I had to lose a life and I got to wait a whole bunch. I got to wait another turn in order for me to get back to the situation. But, you know, I would be remiss if you didn't have the opportunity to shout out any other mentors that you have besides Bernard, who are they, what you think they've done for your career, and how you think they've shaped the way you've helped people after you? My, two of my mentors, uh, one is John Honor Jr. He is former senior vice president at KPMG. He was also the former executive director of human resources for Major League Baseball. He is the director of human resources for United Technologies, and he was also the executive director of EVP for human resources for U.S. Airways. And he, uh, at the time when I met him, we were both working at KPMG, and you had to, when you came on board there, you worked for a certain partner within the practice group but you would have a performance partner, a performance mentor. And I had a gentleman by the name of David P who's from the United Kingdom. Great guy, lovely guy. And then since there are so few uh, African-Americans working at KPMG, it was encouraged that we seek out people of color as an additional mentor. And that's how I met John Honor. Mm. So our relationship is more about um, his big consulting business and him giving advice on the uh, financial services company that I started. And also, we talk a lot about the politics and how he served in the Vietnam War and how he's still active in civil, civil unrest and demonstrating and writing letters to Congress. My other mentor is William Crawford, who happens to be the father-in-law of Greg Coles, who played at Monte Christi High School many years ago and then went on to play at Clemson University. And I met him through the church that I grew up in, First Baptist Church. And that's how, in fact, I spoke to him today. We don't really talk about basketball. We just talk about 
life in, of, in and of itself. And to have two gentlemen older than me, extremely wealthy, extremely successful, just share their views on things, it's important to understand what's important for me in my life. So a lot of times I say to people, you learn a lot about life by watching other people live there. And so that's really the function of my mentors. I've, I've learned a lot about life just by watching them. Mm. In terms of you being a mentor yourself, I think that's one of the most selfless things that you could do, at least in the officiating world, is that give back, being a mentor, being identified. And, you know, Bernard has helped me navigate for me to be in a position because I just recently, I'd say within the past two years, identified myself as a mentor. Before I was like, why, why would you listen to me? I don't understand. But then, you know, as you hear your story, any of that type of empirical evidence, that experience that you have, whether it be a failure or a success, just the fact that you're paying that forward, you know, you learn a lot. So, you know, having said that, just talking about being a mentor, what do you think you've learned from the people that you've helped? Well, Ralph, let me say this. There's a gift in the giving. So if you're mentoring someone, if you're mentoring someone uh, you're a blessing to them because you're sharing information, wisdom, and knowledge. And you're receiving your blessing because you're, you're serving, serving someone else. Now, a lot of times with mentoring, it's not even giving out information. It's really about just listening and letting the mentee express themselves and tell you what it is that they're pursuing or what they want and how they should go about it. I have nine nieces and nephews, and I learned from them that I don't tell them what to do and what not to do. What I try to do is I try to explain to them what I did in my life and what mistakes I made. And so I tell them that they're intelligent enough to disseminate what information they need to filter out and what, what they can use for themselves. Because you and I and Bernard, we all know that if you tell a young person to do something, in most cases they do the 180 degree <laughs> opposite thing that you told them. So I've learned to stop. <laughs> I don't give out unsolicited advice. I don't tell people what to do. Mm. And I, so I say this to Bernard all the time. I don't offer advice to referees on the court. Mm. I think that's the worst thing you can do is to try to give your partner or partners in a three-person advice in the middle of a game. Mm. I think what we need to do is just work the game, and then if a younger person has a question, then I'm going to offer a sincere feedback that has some meat to it and has some work to it. Mm. I don't like for someone to, in the middle of the game, try to give me correcting information unless it's involving a play. You know, if we, if we want to talk about my performance, let's do that after the game, when the game is over. With. Right. But in the middle of the game, you want to be focused on the task at hand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for anybody that's a, thinking about that, uh, the best analogy that I can give is that if you're performing in Broadway and somebody's giving you a critique in real time, that really puts away from your performance. So, you know, any sure. officials like when you think about it that way, it's like, okay, let me wait till they're off stage, back in the dressing room. And then we can really chop it up and try to refine that. And especially in one of those moments, one of those moments when a, an official messes up, they know they messed up. You know, they, mm -hmm. they have a vested intrinsic 
feeling that they wanted to get it right. So just always remember that. Don't compound that behavior by trying to, you know, let them know that in real time. You are the second vice president for board number 37 in Brooklyn, New York. How did you get involved with your local association? And what does that mean to you to serve on the board? First question, I got involved because when I first started officiating in in around 2000, the few events that I worked were for either Bernard Bowen or Wayne Mackey. Back then, I I didn't even know Joey Cruz. I didn't even know of Hoops in the Sun, I looked at these. And most of the folks that I worked with were board 37 members. So I developed relationships with them first on the court before I even started to pursue certification. I did end up working with some folks from board 42 and I did even take the exam up there, but I failed it. And it was just over time that I passed at board 37's exam. I got to know a lot of the officials from the AAU circuit and a lot of the summer tournaments here in the city. Joined the board, got certified, was happy about that. Shortly thereafter, I got a college contract. So I was working for Tim Ebersole as well. In terms of the second vice president, the funny thing about it is I actually thought that I was going to be a what they call a member at large. And then Mr. Kenny Jordan, he called me one day and he said, we've decided to move you up to second vice president. So I said, okay. okay. So I had been working on some projects with 437 that we're still trying to get off the ground once we get past COVID-19. And I had some ideas about how the board functions because a lot of our members at IABLE board, they join, but they don't really understand the functionality of the board mm. and what it actually does. And having conversations with Kenny, he was like, yeah, you're spot on. That's exactly the functionality of the board. So I guess over time, Kenny just decided, hey, you don't need to be a member at large. We'll make you a second vice president, then you'll move up to the first vice president, and then you'll be president of the board in a, a few years. Because the roles are very ceremonial. They're not roles with a significant amount of teeth to it, if I can say that. Mm. But it is a role in which you can assist the board, you can help drive the mission statement of the board, and you can especially help the younger people who are coming on and are just kind of shell-shocked around the whole structure of IABO, TSAL, Catholic high schools, colleges, junior colleges. There's a whole structure around that. And just as though, just as Bernard took me through the process from neophyte to an official, I want to be able to hand that off to some of these younger folks that are coming up to Board 37 now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I completely understand that navigation, especially coming from Long Island. You know, I got my whole thing in Long Island, and then when I go to the city, it just compounds with, you know, you, you really need help. This is not something that you can really have a go at, just kind of like driving blindly. But after everything you said, what do you think of the attributes? What do you think it took to get to where you are at this moment in time as a basketball official? Okay, there's two answers to that. The first one is I have not arrived. I don't feel like I've arrived at all. You know, no matter how much experience you have and how long you've been doing it, I just don't think that people can, I think people should not poke their chest out and brag about who they are. And let me say this so you can understand why I bring it up. One of the things that I don't agree with is when you're talking with people 
and they're giving you their resume mm. while they're talking. Mm. <laughs> That's a pet peeve of mine. None of that matters. Like my mother said, none of that matters in the past. Trophies only, only thing trophies do is collect dust. Mm. Now, in terms of where I am today, it's based on faith, humility, strength, and God's grace and mercy. That's it. What do you think it's going to take to get to where you want to go? And ultimately, where do you want to go as a basketball official? 120% effort. Organized plan. I did speak with Donnie Eppley when he first started sending out invitations for his Zoom meeting. And because of the unique environment of COVID-19, I know that this year I won't be working for him at all. Mm. So next year, uh, I'll just have to map out my calendar attend his camp that he holds at Spooky Nook, Pennsylvania, and work with the board and continue to do some PSAL games and just stay focused about officiating. The other thing, and I got to say this, I have to say this, I'm going to continue to keep running every other day. When we first hit the pandemic in March, we're all stuck inside, we're all cooped in. The football field here in my town, the gate was closed, it was padlocked, we couldn't even get inside. So I started running a route through my town, which was about two miles. And I just did it every other morning because I wanted to get out of the house and just sweat a little bit because I knew that just sitting around wasn't good. So I want to continue to keep running every other day. And when we are able to get back on the court, I'm going to feel better about myself because then I have been running. So mm. I've got my legs underneath. Now, if, if you did have a prediction, when do you think that PSAL, NCAA, when do you think that's really going to happen? Do you think that's even going to be happening this year? January 4th, 2021. Yeah, I'm with you on that. January 4th. I'm, I'm with you on January that. January 4th, 2021. Yeah. Okay. That was uh, that's based off of the press release that was done by Dr. Martin Zayas. He was the executive director of New York State High School Sports Athletic Association. He is the gentleman who... Uh, is running the COVID task force and is reporting to Governor Cuomo. Mm. And on July 16th, he put out a press release saying that uh, the New York State Public High School Athletic Association uh, has a tentative schedule and for season number one, winter sports, which would include basketball for girls and boys, bowling, gymnastics, ice hockey for girls and boys, and your track and field for girls and boys, and skiing for girls and boys, as well as swimming for boys, would begin January 4th through March 13th. So that is the, the kind of schedule that uh, Dr. Martin Zayas, Dr. Robert Zayas, excuse me, is the executive director, he put out in July. So I think that will probably take place. I think there will not be any fans in attendance. And I think the children, these high school athletes, will have to be uh, checked for their temperature. They have to have some kind of protocol in place for children, coaches, or officials if they should happen to become infected with the virus. So Mm. as it stands, that's where we are, January 4th. Yeah, I hope you're right, because I know we're all brimming, 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 brimming to uh, get back on the court. Right. The final couple of questions I have for you, if you can, describe the most sticky situation that you've ever had as an official in basketball. As an official, the Houston Suns, a very competitive program. 
doing a high school age group, and uh, one particular team came down from the Poughkeepsie area, and uh, a couple of kids on one of the teams was chirping or criticizing the whistle after every call. At this stage of my career, I'm trying to mitigate the issuance of technical fouls. So I go over to the coach and I tell him, like, look, you need to get your player under control. And I'm giving you this opportunity to get him under control. Because if you don't get him under control, he won't be playing anymore. Mm. I'm going to send him out. And it's my, right as, it's my right as an official to exit people from the game. So he took heed to what I was saying. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, and you know this, Ralph, as an official, Bernard knows this as well. As a player, I didn't question every whistle. Mm. As a player, I didn't question the whistle at all. I never talked back to my opponent. Hey, I, never hey, talked back, I never talked back to the referee. So you're gonna back in? I never talked back to my head coach. But I'm an old school official, and I, I get it, and I understand this is a different generation. We have to have some semblance of order on the court. And I'd like, I'm proud of when parents come over to me uh, at Orchard Beach or at ISA and say, one thing, we, one thing we notice in your games is that they're always under control. I said, that's correct. And the other thing, Ralph, that we should all understand is that every child in this country deserves an honest and fair effort. We should be officiating and giving our best effort. We shouldn't be, even if we don't agree with the child's behavior, we still have to referee the game based on the rules and the adjudication of the rules. Mm. That's a hard thing to do because sometimes we do get into personal conflicts within ourselves about players' behavior. So I learned I learned over the last few years, when I need to get a player under control, I try to pull him aside during a dead ball and say, look, your recruitment is determined not only by how many points you score, but also by your conduct. Mm. And when I say that to them, they get it. They stop. So then they realize, I can't act out because it may hurt my recruitment as a high school player. Right, and we want we as referees we want to see all of our high school kids get scholarships because that's what I want. I wanted a scholarship so I could go to college. Right, right, and you so know that, that's that's one of our main goals as, as officials that mm-hmm. we want to present them in the best possible way, give them our very best efforts, and not have any bias towards the children or the culture. Mm. That's tough. It's not easy in the tri-state area. Because they have a lot of hot-headed coaches. And we no. get it. You know, we understand. No. But, it, but it, that's the goal. That's the goal for us. Yeah. And, of course, as, as, you, get, as you get more experience with this officiating thing, it, it makes you start making a website, and then, and then you kind of laugh about all of the uh, anecdotes that, that you go along the way. <laughs> I guess my final question to you, if you can, what is your best moment thus far in your long-tenured career as a basketball official? When I have a kid walk up to me before the game starts and they ask me, am I refereeing their game? And when I tell them, yeah, they smile from ear to ear. Mm. That's the best moment. 
That's always a good that's moment. The best moment. That's always a good moment. That's the best. That's, that's the best moment. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's that's yeah. definitely a, a a microcosm of you know all the hard work that you put in. Um, that kids always you know really rely on you when you're on the court, Bernard. If you can, yes, sir. If if you have any final questions, uh, any other comments that you have for Mr. Joe Thompson? You know what? I was listening, and I am so proud, and that's why I didn't intervene until you asked me a question. But I can honestly say I am so proud of Joe as not just a basketball official, but as a human being who's in the basketball community, who loves to share his knowledge and his wisdom, Mm. even when he disagrees to agree, but understand how to hold a conversation in a professional manner. Mm. And I am so proud of him. And, And he may not even realize how proud I am of him. And, and as yourself, you know, so as we plan to do more of these and give, you know, officials an opportunity to be heard, he's going to be one that we look up to and listen to and others that come behind him will listen and say how they can share their knowledge and their experience. They're just going to make us better all as officials besides professional people in life. Mm. So I thank him for this time that he's put taken with us and put us on this journey and and, uh, I'm looking forward to letting him share that with a lot of his friends and his mentors to see how well he has done and how well he is respected in the referee community. Yeah, absolutely. And and to me, this is a thank you for all of your contributions within the officiating community. I thought it was important because even though I'm on the women's college side, you know, you run with Bernard, anybody that runs with Bernard, I'm, I'm completely family with. And also at the same time, to me, I always looked at this when I started embarking on making this website and this podcast, I always knew that I wanted to have a form of having a pregame, in the game, a postgame with officials because they all had stories. They all mattered to me in all different types of levels, and you're no different. So I thank you, Joe. Any final words you want to say before we part ways? Just my wish that we, we stay safe and that a year from now we can look back on 2020 and just say, we made it through and that we get a chance to get back on the court and do something that we really love. So I want to thank you guys for having me. I didn't know what, I was glad you sent some pre podcast questions. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what the podcast would tell, but I really, I'm very appreciative of you guys. I'm so honored to quit. So. Yeah, you were probably surprised that we 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 flip flop. I'm doing all the talking, and Bernard is the one that's in the background. Isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Oh man! So we thank you for Bernard Bowen Senior, for Joe Thompson. This is Ralph the Ref. This is the rant. We are signing out. Peace.